0: Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Good morning. Better. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, a couple of things. Thank you. Thank you. And to you too, Cesar. Thank you. Hey, uh, listen, happy Father's Day to all the dads and all the dad uh, father figures out there. Thank you. Um, this is the uh, last week of our uh, fundraising drive with our partner at Envisage uh, Pregnancy Services here in town. And uh, so they've been raising money from Mother's Day through Father's Day. And if you've not yet made a donation to their baby bottle drive, this would be a good time to do that and to go to their website and make a contribution, help them with this incredible ministry that they carry out day by day uh, here in our city. And we're also uh, privileged to have Matt Fraser here today. Uh, Matt is uh, the lead on uh, uh, Movement Seminary based out of Montreal. This is a Master of Arts in Biblical Leadership program, and it's different than other master's programs. If you have an undergrad you want to be in church leadership you want to develop your skills in that uh, this is a master's degree that is uh, not really academic but it's competency based you do it where you are and uh and it's just a very unique approach a new approach to uh to master's level education for uh, the church matt has a table uh, out in the west lobby and i encourage you to stop by there pick up a brochure and chat with him about this very unique program in developing christian leaders for the church sound good Ready for the word? Don't make me ask you twice. You ready for the word? Here, here we go. All right, all right. Would you agree? We're in Revelation chapter five today, and would you uh, would you agree? Listen, life gives us more than enough reasons to weep. Would you agree with that? Life gives us more than enough reasons to weep. Uh, tears come with things as minor as scraped knees and as major as the loss of loved ones. And Solomon says in um, Ecclesiastes, which is like his journal, where he's reflecting on life, he says in Ecclesiastes 1.18, uh, essentially, the more you know, or the more you live, or the more you experience of life, Solomon says, the more sorrow you're going to have. And that would be terrible. I mean, if if it ended there, if that's all we had, it would be terrible, it would be pessimistic, it would be such a, a fatalistic view of life, if not for what we read at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, this book that we're studying. Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe every tear. Can I change the program, pronoun? He will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen? Amen? I mean, look forward to that day. And this is relevant, this this idea of how much we weep in life and the hope that we have at the end. This is relevant to today's passage in Revelation 5, because at a certain point in what we're going to see today is John, the apostle, is receiving this vision from Jesus, this vision of eternity. At a certain point, he began, this is verse 4 of the passage we'll read in a moment, he began to weep loudly because he thought in that moment there's no hope there's only weeping and when there's no hope when there's an absence of hope that plunges us into despair into misery and thankfully John was assured in the very next moment that hope was right there in the form of God's redemptive plan That redemptive plan is our only hope to never have to weep again. Isn't that awesome? That we're going to get to a place where we never have to weep again. Now, Revelation 5, which I'll read in a moment, is built on Revelation 4. The two chapters go together. It's one in the same vision with the throne room of God, the throne of God at the very center of it all. So let me read the passage for us, and then we'll get into this today. Revelation chapter 5, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I feel overwhelmed coming to a chapter like this and having to now preach this. I hope you feel a sense of being overwhelmed just from having heard it read to you. Because it's awesome, and it speaks to us of God's redemptive plan. And God's redemptive plan, this is what we're going to see in this, in this message, God's redemptive plan is our only hope. Our hope is not in government initiatives. Our hope is not on educational uh, uh, programs. Our hope is not in positive thinking. Our hope is not in kumbaya moments among human beings. God's redemptive plan is the only hope for our world. And so several things need to be true of us. First of all, this, I must know the history. God has always had this plan. This has always been his plan. God has always been in full control of what's going on. Verse 1, John says, I saw in the right hand, he's looking at the throne room, he sees God, the right hand of God, there's something in it. Now, right hand, so important. How many lefties here? Just raise your left hand if you're a lefty. Raise your left hand if you're a lefty. You don't want to admit it right now. I understand that because in the scripture, scriptures, I mean, lefties get kind of a raw deal uh, because the right hand, all the right-handed people said amen, the right hand, sorry lefties, the right hand is the strong hand symbolizing sovereignty and ruling authority. And so this, the the one on the throne, John's looking, and in his right hand it says, the right hand of him who is sitting on the throne, this is God the Father. There's clear Trinitarian teaching throughout this chapter. We're going to see the Father, we're going to see the Son, we're going to see the Spirit. In his right hand is a scroll written within and on the back. So this is the full revelation of God. It wasn't customary to write on both sides of a scroll, but both sides of this were written on to show this is the full revelation of everything that God wants us to know. Nothing is left out. And in fact, if you, if you want to track this down in the Old Testament, very, there's several places where this scroll is spoken of as well, but Ezekiel chapter 2, specifically verses 9 and 10, speak also of the scroll. Anyways, it's sealed. It's a scroll. It's written on both sides. It's sealed with seven seals. This would be on the edge to keep it from opening, to make sure it was secure, the message was secure. Seven of these seals, each one of them embossed. Seven witnesses would have put their seal on that to ensure the legitimacy of what was being attested to in the document. What we have in this document is the God-authored creation, redemption strategy, and plan that represents the history that you and I as humanity have been living out and are living out and will live out. This is the history of the world. Specifically, the history of God's redemptive plan. Because we as human beings messed it up. Now I get that history, history isn't just you know, facts and figures. It's not just dates and names and places. I'm I'm a bit of a history buff. I like reading history. I like understanding history. And I understand that it comes with prejudices. History isn't just those of you who don't like history, I get why you don't like it because you thought it was just about memorizing dates and names and places. And it's not. It's far more than that. History is subject to to geopolitical and religious influences. It's never as simple as just facts. It's never just dates and names and events. We're, we're, here in Canada and North America, we're largely given to a Western view of the world. People in China do not have a Western view of the world. They have a, an Eastern view of the world. They have a different perspective on it. They look at history in a different way. History is also influenced by our study of anthropology, by linguistics, uh, certainly by theories of origins. And there is, there is a built-in presuppositions and prejudices depending on who you are, what point in history you're studying these things, where you come from. And when we look at history today, because there seems to be this even revisionist history that's happening today, looking back and changing the way we see things, and that to a large extent is because we have a built-in in our culture today, we have a built-in pre- prejudice with respect to God and the Judeo-Christian view of the world. In fact, a wonderful new book that's been written that I've just started reading by Glenn Scrivener, I've quoted him before, a book called The Air We Breathe, uh, says that the world doesn't want to recognize the fact that at the core of all of our institutions and all of our values is this biblical Judeo-Christian influence or ethic. The world doesn't want to admit that. They want to set that aside and try to figure out history all on their own. But in fact, as Scrivener argues, it's in biblical truth that we find the basis, not all the details, but we find the basis. We find the basis for an explanation about how everything works from the complexities of how the cosmos works to the very specific details of human behavior. Now, this scroll, I'm telling you all of this because this scroll that we're reading about in Revelation 5 contains all of that. It contains God's perspective on history and God's plan for history. And that's why we can't leave him out of it. This scroll is the complete blueprint for history and the redemption of humanity and the creation. The existence of this scroll lets us know that this has always been God's plan. It was written before the foundation of the world. And when we understand this, we find great confidence in being able to respond to the world's uh, philosophies that are absent of God. We can confidently, if we train our young people, send them into uh, high school with the confidence to be able to address these Matters knowing that God is at the center, their understanding is uh, focused on the gospel, that God has always had a plan, that He's a part of all of it. When they leave high school and head to college and university, they can uh, stand, sit in classrooms and hear other philosophies and filter all of it through an understanding of the Lord. As these teachers and profs struggle to draw their own blueprint without a creator, those of us who know the Lord can point them back to him. And so, all of that to say, know the history. Of God has always had this plan. This scroll contains the plan. And so, see this next. Acknowledge the great tragedy that we find ourselves in. Acknowledge the tragedy that no one is worthy. No one's worthy of this plan. In fact, this world that we're living in is a very broken world. I don't need you to convince you of that. You live it every single day. If I can take you from history class to English literature class, is that better for any of you? If I can take you to English literature class, we are living day by day a Shakespearean tragedy. Once in a while we convince ourselves that we're living in one of his comedies, but only for a brief moment. And we realize we're in one of his tragedies and that life is hard. Sin and death have infected God's beautiful and perfect creation. And apart from his intervention, we are destined for what the Bible calls second death. We will die once physically. We will die second of all spiritually, which is eternal separation from God and his grace. Uh, That is a a horrible fate that uh, goes beyond any ability to describe it. And so we must be on this side of eternity concerned with our spiritual well-being, the condition of our souls. And, And that's the great tragedy that we face, that so few are concerned about this. So few are thinking about their souls, that people will be eternally separated from God unless God intervenes, not only in this world, but in their lives. Because we have no means within ourselves to remedy this tragedy. We cannot be good enough. We cannot be religious enough. We cannot do anything to merit God's favor and to reverse the tragedy that has come upon this world. So in the text, John says, There's God, he's on the throne, he has the scroll, it's in his right hand. Verse 2, I saw a mighty angel, John says, proclaiming with a loud voice, trying to move the action along. This angel, this mighty angel says, who's worthy? Who's who's fit? Who's deserving of what will happen next? Who's qualified to do what I'm going to ask you to do on the basis of who they are? what they've done, what they've accomplished, who is worthy to open the scroll, to reveal the plan? Because everything hinges on this. All of history depends on that scroll being opened and us knowing the plan, and that plan unfolding. Again, history makes no sense apart from Christ. You're grasping at theories and perspectives and prejudices. But it makes no sense apart from Christ. Until these seals are broken, until the scroll, scroll is unrolled and the message unveiled, humanity remains in essence lost and unredeemed. Evil continues its rampage on the earth. Destroying all that it touches in time. And the reason the question is being asked here by the mighty angel who's worthy, who's worthy is because there's no human being that's worthy. There are no angelic beings that are worthy. We have the throne room. We have these four living creatures who are incredible in their description. There's the 24 elders, these mighty angels that are surrounding the throne room of God. And even though they have this great proximity to the throne, none of them are worthy. So the question hangs in the air who's worthy? Who's worthy? So the tragedy of sin and the resulting curse of death continues to affect the world that we live in. At the heart of sin's greatest devastations, as we think about this tragedy that we're living in this moment where no one can be found to open the scroll, it leaves us in this moment of great tragedy. And at the heart, as I said, at the heart of sin's greatest devastations is this matter for us as human beings, this matter of satisfaction or contentment. It's it's really at the heart of our own personal tragedies. A lack of satisfaction, a lack of contentment in our lives, a a lack of, of, of satisfaction with who or what God made us to be. Satan wants human beings to be unsatisfied with how God made them and what he's given to them. That's what Satan wants from you today. He wants you to be unsatisfied with what God is doing in your life and how God has made you. In fact, original sin, the first temptation comes right back to this very point of dissatisfaction. The serpent, Satan, and Eve are talking in the garden. God's given Eve everything. Adam and Eve have received everything. They have life. They're in the image of God. He walks in the garden with them. They have face-to-face fellowship with with the creator. They can eat and enjoy anything in the garden except this one tree. The serpent comes along and has a conversation with Eve. And he questions her satisfaction with everything God has given to her, everything God has made her. You're not really satisfied with all of that, are you? Wouldn't you like to have just a little bit more? Wouldn't you like to taste from that tree? Wouldn't you like to be as God, knowing good and evil? Because that's going to happen if you eat that fruit. You just go to that tree. And then, then, Satan says, then you'll be satisfied, Finally you'll be satisfied. That's Satan's a salesman. That's his pitch. I know you have all of that, but you could have more. You're not satisfied with that, aren't you? It's what you have. It's, listen to this, it's not enough. That's what he's saying. It's not enough. It's not enough that you're a woman. It's not enough that you're created in the image of God. It's not enough that you're here in this perfect environment. It's not enough that you get to walk with God. You should have something else. You should have more. You should be like God. And I know how you can be like that. Never mind that he's lying to her. Because he can't give her that. She can't be as God in the sense that Satan is promoting, tempting her with. It's a lie. Now the thing. It's the, Satan doesn't have any new, new, new tricks. It's the same thing for you and me. It's a matter of satisfaction. Will you be content with the thing that God has given you? Can you be content, satisfied with the thing that God has made you? Or are you unsatisfied with all of that? Is it not enough for you? And so we pursue things that are detrimental to our well-being in order to satisfy a Satan-induced dissatisfaction with how God made us. This is the root of all of it. It's not enough. It speaks into all areas of our lives i will just pick on a few of these. Speaks to to this matter of wealth. It doesn't really matter how much you have. And whatever economic position you happen to be in right now, generally speaking, every person in this room would desire more. Just a little more. Doesn't have to be a lot. Just a little more than what I have. Because we're dissatisfied, and that's the evil one just saying to us, you're not satisfied with what God has given you? You should have more. It's not enough. Wealth, or, or, or influence, power, however we want to say this. Position, status, how people perceive us. I want people to like me more. I want to be in a different relationship. I want to be with this person. I want to be friends with them. I want more likes. I want to be an influencer. We're not content with what God has given to us. We're dissatisfied. It's not enough. It speaks into our, perce- our perceptions about gender. If I don't like the gender I am, I can be a different one. Apparently, there's more than two. Speaks to matters of sexuality. I don't just want to be with this person or that person. or doesn't matter. I'm, I'm dissatisfied. It's not enough. I'll go be with someone else. Satan tells us you don't have enough money, you don't have enough possessions, you need more. People aren't treating you like you deserve. You should be recognized, more esteemed, that your gender or sexuality isn't enough. You should change. You should pursue more. It's all lies. It's all lies. But here's the thing, it works. It works on us. Satan comes to us all the time and says, it's not enough. And we go, yeah, you're right, it's not. I'm preaching this, I'm preaching this for the second time today and I know something's gonna come up tomorrow where I go, you're right, it's not enough. We're gonna trip over this one. Every person in the room is gonna trip over this one a dozen times in the next seven days before we get together again in this place. It's not enough. Satan doesn't need any new tricks because this one keeps working on us. We're still looking to be something we aren't meant to have, want to have things that we don't have. And the culture around us just fuels this. Especially the peer pressure applied on us through social media. Because they've pushed God out. And by pushing God out, they've pushed out the ethical boundaries that he's put in place for us. And so we look at everything in our lives and we go, it's just not enough. And that's the tragedy, to come back to the point here, that's the tragedy that you and I live with every single day. And from John's perspective, if the seals, as he's seeing this vision, if the seals are not broken, if the scroll is not open, then the effects of evil in the world are going to continue unabated, and not just in the world, but in my life. I'm going to have to perpetually live with this tragedy. And so for in that one moment, while John is taking in the vision, verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, that's the whole universe, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I mean, this is the only hope for humanity. This is the one and only plan that God has. There's only one scroll. And so it's no wonder, verse 4, notice, John began to weep loudly. I mean, he's sobbing uncontrollably. This is from his heart, grief and mourning. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And so the implication in this this moment, as he's seeing the vision, the implication is Satan wins. This is Revelation chapter five. There isn't going to be a chapter six. Satan wins. Death has a foothold in our lives. Sin is not defeated. Because that's what it looks like in this moment to John. And we have so many little moments in our lives where it looks exactly the same, where we weep even without hope, wondering how this is ever going to turn around, how we're ever going to overcome the tragedy. We weep when we see eight-year-olds gunned down, the faces of eight-year-olds gunned down in their classrooms. When we see refugees, millions of them, fleeing their homeland, their country because of war. We weep and feel the tragedy of the effects and the after effects of the pandemic that are going to be with us for years, some of which will never be reversed. Scar tissue that will always be there. Not to mention the tragedy, the death of loved ones, the loneliness and loss that follows. It never quite gets healed, does it? Or of strained relationships, we we weep loudly at strained relationships where once we pledged love and devotion to each other, or once we were close friends, relationships have been severed and estranged, and we see no hope of that ever coming back together again. We weep loudly at poverty's impact on so many. We weep loudly at the effects of addiction, the destructive effects of addiction in people's lives tearing families and friendships apart. And all of this is the effect of sin in the world. All of it is tragedy, is a great tragedy. And and despite the very best efforts of some to alleviate the suffering, because I know there's people working to try and alleviate the suffering, to reverse the tragedy, but as as try as they might, they can't. You can't deal with it all. Strategies devoid of God, strategies that forget that God is at the center will fail. Try as we might. This, this, listen, the tragedy of, of that human, humanity is experiencing is a raging forest fire fueled by strong winds. And we're in the face of it with a little squirt gun trying to put out the fire. We have no capacity to reverse the tragedy if the scroll is not opened. We remain in sin's grip and we should all grieve as John grieved in that moment. We should grieve openly. We should grieve loudly. Now, here's the good news. You go, okay. (laughs) Because it's been heavy up till now. And without the good news, we despair of life itself. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 30 verse 5, the latter part of that verse. Weeping may tarry for the night, but, you want to read it with me? Joy, say it. Joy comes with the morning. Amen? That's the hope that we have, and that's what we see as this vision continues. There is hope, and you and I can. Let's see this next. Experience the victory. The lamb, the lamb was slain. Everything, in fact, here is building to a crescendo, and you can sense the dramatic moment as the text goes on. One of these powerful angels acts as a narrator to this epic scene. Verse 5, one of the elders, that's the angelic being, said to me, weep no more, you don't need to cry. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now that first designation for Christ here, that comes to us from the blessing that Jacob Jacob was putting a blessing at In Genesis 49, just before he dies, he's putting a blessing on his 12 sons. And Judah comes to him, one of his sons, and he puts a blessing on him. And and Jacob could not possibly have known that when he was putting that blessing on him, he was actually speaking a messianic prophecy, something that would point all the way down the ages to the Messiah, the Savior, who would come. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's also the root of David. That's Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. The prophet speaking of the restoration of the Davidic line, which was long gone by Jesus' day. There was no longer a Davidic king on the throne of Israel. There was no throne of Israel. And so these two things together, the line of the tribe of Judah and and the root of David, speak to this conquering king of Israel who will come and reestablish the kingdom of God. And these are the credentials that make him worthy because he has conquered. He has conquered. The verb tense is a, 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 an event that is accomplished, it's done, it's completed, so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Now what's really challenging for us to understand here is, is we're thinking, hasn't Jesus already given us the victory? Isn't the book of Revelation so many books past the gospel where we read about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Is the victory not won? Did Paul not write about this in 1 Corinthians 15? Do we not already have the victory? What's going on here? Yes, this is a completed action. Yes, we rightly use that language of of victory, of, of, of completion, of it is finished in our preaching and in our worship songs. But our interpretation of revelation is contingent on a key phrase that we've heard before. This is the phrase, now but not yet, now but not yet. So, that when we read Revelation, we need to understand everything in terms of yes, this is now, but it's not yet in the sense that it's not fully accomplished. For example, the kingdom of God we understand has been inaugurated in the world. The kingdom of God is among us, the kingdom of God is in us as believers, the kingdom of God is in the church of Jesus Christ. But we also look at the world around us and we understand our own temptation and we know how tragic life is beyond uh, here. And we understand that the kingdom of God is not fully influencing the world that we live in yet. It is now, but not yet. And when we take that principle and apply it to this vision, the death and resurrection of Christ have happened. We understand that. Sin and death have been defeated on the cross and with the empty tomb. But the consummation of that victory awaits Can I put awaits in quotes again? You know how I like to put these words that have to do with time. I'm going to put them in quotes. The consummation of that victory awaits the final unveiling. Exactly what we're seeing here in chapter five. So in in essence, what we're seeing is the ongoing application of the atonement of Christ. And remember, and this is the key to it all, remember that this is all happening in non-time. We're in time And all of this is happening in non-time or in eternity. And so it's kind of unhelpful for us to think that Jesus died 2,000 years ago, as he did. We understand that in history. Jesus died and was raised 2,000 years ago, and that we're still, again, waiting for all of this to happen. The challenge with that, and the reason why that's unhelpful, is because John is seeing this, and John... John was 1,900 years ago. John was at the end of the first century seeing these visions. John is seeing these visions as having already happened or happening as he was seeing them, and yet we see them as yet future because they haven't happened yet for us. So it's happened, it's happening. It hasn't quite happened yet. We're just waiting for the full application of these events on our timeline. Do you like this stuff? You like talking about time like that? You're Still trying to figure it out? You keep coming back every week, so I figure that it's okay to keep, to keep mentioning this and to help us understand these things. So John is told that the line of the tribe of Judah is worthy, but when he turns and looks, and this is again this incredible dramatic moment The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. He turns to look at the lion of the tribe of Judah and what he sees is shockingly different than the description because he doesn't see a lion at all. What he sees is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That word slain used also for what Cain did to Abel means violently murdered, slaughtered, butchered. This is a brutal, sacrificial death that the lamb suffered. Immediately, makes us think back to Isaiah 53, this, this amazing a passage of prophecy pointing to the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 7, the latter part of that verse says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. This is speaking of the Messiah. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The whole sacrificial system is based on blood sacrifices, and that blood is necessary for the atonement of our sins. God uses, I, mean, I just love the picture that God always uses the weak things to confound the wise. Paul wrestled with that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 his own weakness. And it's in our weakness that God's strength is made perfect. This is just another illustration that God's using a lamb to accomplish his purposes. You couldn't think of a more docile animal. And this lamb is slain, but notice standing. It's, It's slain, but it's standing. A lamb that is slain doesn't stand. It's killed, but somehow it's It's up and and the lamb is alive. Beyond that, we have a, a slain lamb. It's obvious it's been slain, but it's standing and alive. Beyond that, and this is where it gets super trippy. This lamb has seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Again, several symbolic references here. The seven horns, a reference to power. The seven eyes, God's complete revelation, sees everything, in charge of anything, everything knows everything. The seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We've seen this uh, previously in Revelation. So this lamb, I mean, you have to admit, this isn't like your, your cuddly little lamb. This is a powerful lamb. It's a strong lamb. And all of these images, of course, we're not to get caught up in the images themselves. Or, I mean, these, these, these are all symbolic, not literal. John's trying his best to describe something here for us. Now, all of this that we read about the lamb, about the lion and the lamb, all of this, because of all of this, he's able, he's qualified, he's worthy. So verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the, seated on the throne so much is going on here. So much for us to try and grasp and understand even as we study these words, it's hard to wrap our brains about around all of this. And so let me just give this to you from a George Eldon lad as he wrote this. And I read this and thought, you know what, I can't say this better. It's a little bit of a longer quote. But to explain all of this, the final victory of Christ as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, as the conquering Messiah, is possible only because he has first suffered as the Lamb. Here is a great mystery which the New Testament affirms but does not explain because it involves ineffable realities, that is to say, indescribably awesome realities at the point where God's spiritual world intersects with man's historical world. Christ's worthiness and ability to break the seals of the scroll of human history and destiny are dependent on the victory he won in his incarnate life. If he had not come in humility as a suffering Savior, he could not come as a conquering Messiah. and That is our only hope one that must be believed by faith, by each one, individually, coming to a reckoning of these truths. Do you believe? Would you put your trust in Christ? Would you put Him and His gospel at the very center of human history and of your life? Would you experience the victory gained by the Lamb that was slain? Well, finally, this hope that we have compels you and me, to give, give the glory. All heaven, in fact, all heaven and earth rejoice. This is the angelic response to the Lamb, verse 8. The four living creatures, and by the way, when we get to the end of this message, we're going to spend an extended time in worship in, 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 in our own attempt to respond to this. But The angelic response to the Lamb, verse 8, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb in worship, They've worshipped before the throne. This is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. They're worshipping him. He is God. These golden bowls full of incense are the prayers of the saints. This is such a beautiful picture. An awesome affirmation of our prayers. Our prayers of thanksgiving, our praises to God, our intercessions and supplications for others, our calls for justice are in bowls and have arisen before God like incense. He hears you when you pray. So in the midst of your tragedies, keep praying. And they sang a new song, verse 9, a song, as Keener says, freshly inspired. Lyrics arising out of the moment. Worthy are you, they sing to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, because Jesus was slain, and by his blood we have salvation and hope. And they sing that that he ransomed, the verse says, he ransomed people for God. We were prisoners. We were slaves to our own sin. And Jesus paid the price in his blood for us to be freed. Verse 10, and you have made them, made us, those of us who believe a kingdom, joint rule with him and his kingdom for all eternity. And priest to our God, full access, no need of a mediator, full access to our God. No mediator but Christ. And they shall reign on the earth, an indication of physical, earthly, a physical, earthly kingdom at some point in history. And no matter where we are, though, He has bound us together in community with one another as the people of God for now and for all eternity. And this people of God, a full reflection of the beauty of humanity. Seven times in Revelation, we are are reminded that God shows no partiality. Why are we told seven times that God is inviting everyone to come to heaven regardless of their race or their language or the people group they're from? Probably, he said it seven times, because we're thick in the skull. And because we're terribly racist in ways we don't even realize. I'll tell them seven times in the last book. Maybe they'll get it. Nope. We have this abhorrent racism that roots itself in our hearts. And yet God is saying to us seven times, no one is excluded from heaven on the basis of race, language, or culture. So get used to each other now. These ransomed people come from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And then he goes into this praise that focuses on four attributes of God. He is powerful. He's wealthy. He, he, he is wisdom itself. He is mighty and strong. And therefore, we ascribe to him what he is due, honor, glory, glory. And blessing, I'm struggling so much to help us capture the sense of what's going on in this chapter and in this vision. And the best I can do is to take you to perhaps a concert that you went to at some point in your life, a favorite artist, and maybe the concert started, everything went dark, and the artist came out all alone, just just walked out onto the stage and began to sing a cappella. One by one, different band members came out onto the stage and began to play guitars and keyboards and drums, brass instruments, and then backup singers adding to the voice of the one who was singing. More instruments, the sounds got louder and louder as it built up, as this song built up, and more and more were singing and playing until the curtains opened up on the back of the stage and before this crowded stadium of concert goers, a thousand voice choir added their voice to that of the artist and the band. And by that moment, the crowd was in euphoria, singing along with the band and the singers and the choir. It all built up in this stunning crescendo. The crowd swelling up with the music as it builds. That's such a weak illustration of what's going on here, but it helps us at least a little bit to see that it just keeps building. This is a picture of the end, the end of the end, when all are worshiping the Lion and the Lamb. Verse 13, every creature in heaven now also on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped I've done such a poor job of explaining this but here's what I know Our praise of God cannot simply be in these few minutes that we sing together on Sundays. It must encompass the totality of our lives. Our worship is how we work, our worship is how we treat one another, how we speak to one another. Our worship is in our service to others, our worship is in our spending and in our generosity. Worship even includes our witness because he is worthy. That's what we say in worship. He is worthy. It includes our witness because he is worthy of us speaking to unbelievers about him and inviting them to believe his gospel, to put Jesus Christ at the center, to invite them to know him, to invite them to find hope in him, to invite them to weep no more. Let me pray for us. Father, you have overwhelmed us with your word today. And last week as we've looked at these two chapters and others struggled to explain, to understand, to grasp the magnitude of what we've read. God, I pray in some way that your Holy Spirit would work in us to understand it, even for a brief moment, even just a glimpse at these visions and understand them. And so, Father, in this moment, would you receive our very feeble worship? Would you hear us? Father, we're leaning in, anticipating that day when we will join with the angels of heaven in that eternal worship. So hear us now as we sing, as we worship you. I pray in Christ's name.